0: Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I'm going to look at a poem from 1946 written by the American poet Elizabeth Bishop. In case you don't know Elizabeth Bishop, she's something of a poetic ledge, I think it's fair to say, certainly in America. And she was not massively prolific. I hold in my hands her complete poems and it's less than 300 pages. Her big thing was polish and getting the thing precise and correct and working in a poem until it was exactly where she wanted it. I think you could define her approach as meticulous. So the poem I've chosen is called The Man Moth. Why have you chosen this one from her sob 300 page complete poems you ask me? Well, I was lured in by an asterisk. I love an asterisk. They float around the pages of books like those dandelion seed things that fill the summer skies. And this particular one had attached to the title of this poem. Now you don't get that many asterisks in poetry and on a title is a, is a, a lovely event. So why did she asterisk the title The Man Moth? Well, because Elizabeth Bishop wants us to know that the title came from a newspaper misprint. She saw the word mammoth in a newspaper that had been written M A. N for naughty, M O T H. So it became manmoth accidentally. Why does she feel the need to tell us the genesis of this poem? Well, I think because she's delighted by uh, the idea that language plays tricks on us like that—that that one tiny letter in the wrong place can change a word which means gigantic, which refers to these now extinct, mighty, ultra-tusked, hairy beasts. Tusked is a harder word than I ever thought possible. And that's been reduced to a, a, a what sounds like a tiny creature, a man-moth, just by one letter. So I think she is saying that That's exciting to her. And also, I think, allowing us to delight in the fact that she saw a mistake and she's whipped it into a work of art. Okay, I'm going to give you... Well, first of all, I'm going to give you the first line of Man Moth, which is two words and two commas, so this will not be overtaxing. And then I'll give you the first stanza. The first line of The Man Moth, which is hyphenated... I'll tell you. Now that we've got into punctuation in a big way, here above, that's how the man moth begins. Okay, what does that give us? Well, here, comma above, comma. So we are going to be looking down on the subject matter of this poem. It suggests to me an authorial voice. It suggests to me a universality an examination of general themes we are above godlike if you uh, if you want to take it spiritual early on okay now i'll give you the whole first stanza i should say by the way the lines are all longer than that every stanza begins with a very short line and we'll discuss why later here above cracks in the buildings are filled with battered moonlight the whole shadow of man is only as big as his hat it lies at his feet like a circle for a doll to stand on and he makes an inverted pin the point magnetized to the moon he does not see the moon He observes only her vast properties, feeling the queer light on his hands, neither warm nor cold, of a temperature impossible to record in thermometers. I know that sounds all over the place, but trust me, it's brilliant. I mean, she had me at battered moonlight. What a fantastic phrase that is. Moonlight, we discussed it... Elsewhere in this series, I talk about um, Sylvia Plath's poetry and we talk about how the moon has got this mystic, symbolic nature and is often associated with the poetic muses, uh, the place from where poetry is inspired. So battered moonlight suggests that this is going to be a bit more real, a bit more warts and all. But still there will be moonlight. So here above, cracks in the buildings are filled with battered moonlight. So because we are above, I think you get a sense of high buildings, which we being above, the speaker has taken us above them. We are looking down on these, on these buildings. And it says cracks in the buildings are filled with battered moonlight so as i say it seems if we are sort of laying the basic premise for this poem early on this is what you're going to get guys i'm looking at it from above you're gonna get an authorial knowing voice looking down and talking about life but it's also going to be very real we'll see the cracks in the buildings from up here We'll see the moon, but we'll, we'll recognise that it's battered because we'll be able to, to see the fine details. I don't know if you've ever looked down on, on a tall building, but often they are very impressive from ground level, these, these, um, these places. But when you see the roof, it's air conditioning units, the top of a lift shaft... A broken rusting handrail it's it's the ugly side so because we're above looking down on these buildings I think we are saying we're gonna get some big truths but we're gonna get the dirt as well okay what do we see in this battered moonlight the whole shadow of man is only as big as his hat That, I think, is a really clever line, and I'll tell you for why. For a start-off, you need to be told that man has a capital M in this line. So there's a hint of what we used to call mankind before we got enlightened and talked about humankind and, and were more inclusive. But anyway, this was written in 1946, so give Elizabeth a break. The whole shadow of man. And I think now you've put the idea of these high buildings that this voice from above is looking at the top of. When you hear the phrase the whole shadow of man and see a capital M, you think of man's achievements. You think of the mighty shadow that these cities cast and they're all mankind's i'm gonna say humankinds just so i feel better about myself that all their achievements cast a mighty shadow and then that rug of human grandeur is whipped away so here above cracks in the building to fill with battered moonlight the whole shadow of man is only as big as his hat and It is reduced immediately. So we're not talking about the shadow of mankind's mighty achievements. We're now talking about a man. And because we're looking from above in the moonlight and he seems to be wearing some sort of circular hat. I'm thinking bowler, but I could be wrong. The whole shadow of man is only as big as his hat because we're looking from above and that. So we just see the hat shadow on the floor beneath him. It lies at his feet like a circle for a doll to stand on. So, you know, they have these circular bases that, um, that dolls, tiny figures, toy soldiers, whatever, stand on. So it looks like he's on one of those. And again, sl- slightly reducing the idea of man again to make him doll-like as well as having a shadow only as big as his hat. He makes an inverted pin, the point magnetised to the moon. So he looks, because of this circular shadow at his feet, he looks like an upside-down pin. Again, making he's getting even smaller now, this idea of man. We had an idea of the whole shadow of man, I think, as this shadow of the city and now it's a shadow of his hat and now he's become a doll and then he's become a pin smaller and smaller and it's almost like the speaker is tightening the focus now we're going to look in closer and closer on this he makes an inverted pin the point magnetized to the moon so in other words he's upright but The moon, whenever it appears in poetry, as always, it always comes with some baggage. And if we take the idea of the moon as somehow associated with poetry, associated with the muse, seems to be some part of this tiny, doll-like, pin-like man who is drawn upwards. He does not see the moon, even then. We're on undercut again. I was just thinking that he was going to be some poetic figure who's magnetised to the moon, who was drawn to a poetic view of life. But no, he does not see the moon. He observes only her vast properties. So there seems to be something about man that is drawn to the moon, the point magnetised to the moon, he does not see the moon. So that instinct in him to be drawn to the moon seems to have got lost somehow in this urban scape. Can you just use scape like that as a word? I think you can. It's, um, you know, you get seascapes and landscapes. I'm just going to go general. Scape. It's about time that scape got some solo work. He does not see the moon, he observes only her vast properties. Now, the properties of the moon are obviously the things, the the powers of the moon, the, 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 the nature of the moon, that use of properties. But I think because we've been teased into this vague idea of a cityscape, because we're above looking at buildings... I think Vast Properties also suggest that maybe he has a material view of things based on man the builder, man the constructor, man the maker of cities. And that is oppressing his man the magnetised to the moon artistic poetic inclination. Whoa, I'm enjoying this already. Those of you who are still listening, I love you. He does not see the moon, he observes only a vast property. So what vast properties are we talking about in specifics? Feeling the queer light on his hands. Queer, of course, in the old-fashioned sense here of strange, unusual. So he feels the queer light on his hands, neither warm nor cold of a temperature impossible to record in thermometers. And it's never really occurred to me before that moonlight is neither hot nor cold the way sunlight is. It's always tempting to, you know, the great job share of all time is the sun and the moon and it's tempted to compare their vast properties He looks at this strange greying light on his hands, this man with a capital M, and uh, it's neither warm nor cold. And I think that last line of a temperature impossible to record in thermometers suggests that there's something unsettling for man with a capital M here is that he likes things that can be scientifically analysed, things that can be, gauged, things that have numbers attached. But there's something about the moon and the moon's light, which is queer, it's not warm or cold, and you can't measure it with a thermometer. This, it feels to me like, because he's currently queer light on his hands, strange and sort of different, and because he's not actually looking at the moon, it seems we've already got an early conflict here of a man who's magnetised towards the moon but doesn't look at it, who sees moonlight on his hands but is only concerned that it's odd, that it's weird and that it seems to be immeasurable in any scientific way. So you've got that contrast between the poetic and the sort of rock-solid practical crunching against each other in man. Then comes the second stanza and the star of the show is introduced, the eponymous hero, the Man-Moth. But when the Man-Moth pays his rare, although occasional, visits to the surface, the moon looks rather different to him. He emerges from an opening under the edge of one of the sidewalks and nervously begins to scale the faces of the buildings. He thinks the moon is a small hole at the top of the sky, proving the sky quite useless for protection. He trembles, but must investigate, as high as he can climb. What's happened now? What's happened? You're asking me. That first short line we had here above on the first stanza now, but when the man-moth. So a new character walks on the stage. The man-moth both get a capital, capital M, capital M, man-moth. Who is man-moth? What is his relationship to first stanza man, the one with a, a shadow as big as his hat, the one who was magnetized to the moon, but couldn't look at it, the one who was estranged from moonlight. Well, let's have a look-see. But when the man pays his rare, although occasional visits to the surface, the moon looks rather different to him. By the way, you might feel the irregularity in these lines as I read them, and that is the case. I think that although the number of lines in each stanza is uh, is the same, so you get that one short line and then seven longer lines, but they're, they're not of regular length. I think Elizabeth Bishop is trying to unsettle us, make our footing feel a little bit, unstable but when the man moth pays his rare although occasional visits to the surface the moon looks rather different to him so what have we got from that well for a start off i've got a feeling of sort of creepy undergroundness about this i I, whenever i read this i get there are two figures that come to my mind a, a, a novelist and a painter I think of René Magritte the painter who paints all those guys in bowler hats and you can see where I get that from because this circular shadow which man forms in the first stanza and also I get a lot of uh, Franz Kafka um, the guy who wrote the trial and and metamorphosis and whose characters are always alienated from their environment, who always seem ill at ease. That's what I get. Um, it's a sort of a strange, noir, cityscape feel that this poem has, which I love, I've got to tell you. But when the man-moth pays his rare, although occasional visits to the surface, so we know the man-moth is different from man, we know that he lives on the ground normally, and the moon looks rather different to him. So we know he's looking at the Moon, which first stands a man, does not, first stands a man, seems a little afraid of that strangeness that the moon emanates. He emerges from an opening onto the edge of one of the sidewalks and nervously begins to scale the faces of the buildings. So again, we get that idea, I think, of the tall buildings, the cityscape. And emerging from an opening onto the edge of one of the sidewalks, that's where subway exits and entrances come from under the ground by the sidewalk so he's got these man-like qualities it's not just a moth or the poem wouldn't be called the man moth but also he's climbing the side of a building which is much more moth-like do moths live underground i don't know but the man moth does so he nervously begins to scale the faces of the buildings then we get one of the theories of the man-moth. He thinks, writes uh, Bishop, he thinks the moon is a small hole at the top of the sky, proving the sky quite useless for protection. He trembles but must investigate as high as he can climb. So, he comes from underground, and nervously begins to scale the faces of the buildings. Nervous, he he seems a timid, hideaway creature, like moths do. He thinks the moon is a small hole at the top of the sky, so he has none of the scientific basis, no yearning for thermometers for the man-moth. He's come up with his own strange cosmic view which is the moon. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. If you've ever been to Rome, you may have been to the Pantheon, which is now an enormous church, but was originally a pagan temple to all the gods. And when you look upwards as you stand in there, there is a hole in its dome called an oculus. And the purpose of the oculus was to bring light into that pagan temple I think it's about six or eight feet across and also when it rains water comes in but I don't know that that's relevant but it's up there and it seems so odd in this beautiful dome to see a big hole in it so the oculus lets in light which has a practical purpose but it is also the theory that the oculus is where the gods And man's reaching up where they meet, where man has access. I'm I'm using man now. Where humankind has access to the gods and all that they represent through that oculus in the dome of the Pantheon. And this is what I get from this. Now, I don't know if Elizabeth Bishop had that in mind. If she didn't, I'm so pleased that I came up with it. I'm just letting you into my ego for that brief moment. He thinks the moon is a small hole at the top of the sky, proving the sky quite useless for protection. It's interesting that his first thought is, will the sky offer me any protection? No, it won't, because it's got a hole in it. That's why I live underground. So he's a timid, frightened, estranged creature. But... He climbs the faces of buildings, as the last line of that stanza says. He trembles, but must investigate as high as he can climb. So if we're comparing man, first stanza man, with the man-moth, the man-moth has got this urge, which terrifies him, but he has to climb, he has to reach upwards, he has to head for the light, regardless of the danger. And this obviously seems to be a characteristic of the moth in everyday life. The moth can't resist that candle flame, that really hot light bulb in its pursuit of the light. So this seems to be a creature which will risk everything to reach what one might call enlightenment, to get to the oculus to the other world, to this God world, this poetic world, dare I say, this world of the imagination. Right, that's what I think. And I know you trust me on these matters. (laughs) Third stanza. Up the facades, his shadow dragging like a photographer's cloth behind him, He climbs fearfully, thinking that this time he will manage to push his small head through that round, clean opening and be forced through as from a tube in black scrolls on the light. Man standing below him has no such illusions. But what the man-moth fears most he must do, although he fails, of course, and falls back, scared but quite unhurt. Right, up the façades, climb in the faces of these buildings. And also the use of the word façades, I think, suggests some sort of false front. So these buildings look mighty and powerful and look like monuments to what humankind has achieved But we know from the speaker's first words that there are cracks in those buildings that are filled with battered moonlight. Up the facades, his shadow dragging like a photographer's cloth behind him. A photographer's cloth being one of the early photographers had to cover themselves in a sort of a black tent for that moment of the flash that went off to uh, illuminate the subject of the photograph so again we're getting an idea of light but i think well i know that if you're reading a poem and you've talked about one kind of shadow cast by one character in the poem if another shadow is mentioned you're going to as they used to say in the o-level exam paper compare and contrast and first stands a stanza man we're not quite sure what the difference is between these two yet but First stands a man's shadow was only as big as his hat. Man-moth's shadow, which you would imagine would be smaller, dragging like a photographer's cloth behind him. So it is bigger, it seems, the shadow of the man-moth, but also it doesn't have that tight geometric circular shape that First Stands a Man's shadow has. It's more raggedy and flowing, and maybe we're starting to get an image that the man-moth is a creative, a poetic type of some kind, not as tight and geometric as First Stands a Man. His shadow dragging like a photographer's cloth behind him, and also the photographer who grasps beauty in the moment. All these images, the fact that he can see the moon, the fact that his interpretation of the moon is that it's a hole in the sky, he seems to be more interested in symbolism than in science. So I'm getting the sense either the speaker is suggesting there is Two kinds of human being, the sort of solid, geometric, not looking upwards human being, in this instance, man. And then the more creative, frightened, but reaching upward with strange mythological ideas, man-moth. Maybe. That's what I'm feeling at this point, guys. the facade's shadow dragging like a photographer's cloth behind him he climbs fearfully we're constantly being reminded of that contrast climbs fearfully okay he's afraid but still he ascends he climbs fearfully thinking that this time he will manage to push his small head through that round clean opening and be forced through as from a tube In black scrolls on light. So he is forced almost against his will to pursue the light just like a moth and as he climbs this time he's thinking that he will manage to push his small head through that round clean opening and be forced through as from a tube in black scrolls on the light. Now that has to be a birth image, doesn't it? To push his small head through that round, clean opening and be forced through as from a tube. He's talking about some sort of rebirth Isn't he? He's thinking of a rebirth, the man moth. He's seeking a rebirth. He's heading for that round, clean opening, which he thinks is a hole in the sky, the other side of which is bright light, is illumination, is enlightenment. So the man moth climbs, even though he's terrified, he climbs these buildings. His mission is based on an idea which he seems to have come up with himself, that the moon is a whole, the other side of which is a world of light and enlightenment. I think the artist, the poet similarities get clearer, for me at least. And through that round clean opening, be forced through as from a tube in black scrolls on the light. I ondenared about black scrolls on the light for a long time. What does that mean? Well, of course, he's coming from a dark world into a light world, so I can see that he'll be black on the light. Scrolls because he's coming from a hole, it says from a tube. So he's he's been confined in there the way you would roll up a poster before you put it into a cardboard. Tube. So he comes out like that. Scrolls, I think, also suggests what a scrolls for? Writing on or ornamentation. Things that one associates with art or poetry. So he's imagining that. Now, the next line, man standing below him has no such illusions. Hoorah, it's in brackets. And I'm always intrigued by brackets, not as intrigued as I am by an asterisk in a poem, but still brackets. I liked the bracket investigation because poets, as you know, everything a poet does has a special meaning. So these are not going to be casual brackets. So why is that line bracketed? And yes, of course, I blame the parentheses. Man standing below him has no such illusions. So, man, capital M, of the first stanza, that guy who stands on his little doll base, who looks like an upside-down pin, upside-down, suggesting that some unnatural thing, but still magnetised towards the moon. So those urges... Of the man, Martha still in first stands a man, but he's denying them. He doesn't look up. He thinks the light of the moon is just a queer thing, that is immeasurable and so best left alone. And what's happened to him because of that? He has been exiled to brackets. In this, so our brave hero is climbing towards this opening in the sky as he sees it seeking enlightenment meanwhile and as the line says man standing below him has no such illusions so man is standing below him which suggests a lesser being he's in brackets he doesn't even make the poem proper in this reference and he has no such illusions, which normally we'd think, oh, that's a good thing he doesn't have any illusions. That's where we want to be in life. But now he's been bracketed and put below man-moth. We're thinking, oh, maybe it's better to have illusions. Maybe it's better to think that the moon is a hole in the sky. I know there'll be atheists out there thinking, yeah, so maybe this is a justification of believing in God, even if there isn't one. Well, I'm not Going there as I believe in God myself. I don't want to make myself look like I'm some sort of misled fool. I think what's being said is it's better to have dreams, it's better to have mad ideas than to just be too frightened to look upward. Last two lines of the stanza, but what the man moth fears most, he must do. We keep getting that, don't we? That the man-moth is not a heroic figure. He's a frightened figure whose inner being draws him upwards towards the light. But what the man-moth fears most he must do, although he fails, of course, and falls back scared but quite unhurt. He fails, of course. Well, of course, because he's pursuing a mythological end the hole in the sky which leads to a rebirth into an enlightened world. I'm worried that this is getting more like anti-religious belief as I read it. I'm fighting, I'm fighting on my own behalf. But it may be, it may be about that. I think what it's certainly about is that some aspect of humanity feels the need to reach upward towards the light and some other aspect of humanity, for all its great achievements and mighty cities, is too frightened to look up. Next stanza. Then he returns to the pale subways of cement he calls his home. He flits, he flutters, and cannot get aboard the silent trains fast enough to suit him. The doors close, Swiftly, The man-moth always seats himself, facing the wrong way. And the train starts at once, at its full terrible speed, without a shift in gears or a gradation of any sort. He cannot tell the rate at which he travels backwards. So we have this thing that he travels on the subway, so he must be a human being, he must be a man, but it, when we're told that he flits and flutters, then he sounds like a moth again. So, both these things. Let's say that he is a creature, be it human or otherwise, that is moth like in his pursuit of the light and his fear of the world. So, I love that line. Then he returned to the pale subways of cement he calls his home. I'm going to use that next time I'm on the chew. Also, as you know, I love a bit of alliteration. So the pale subways of cement he calls his home, he flits, he flutters, and cannot get aboard the silent trains fast enough to suit him. So he's done his brave climb, he's failed, he wants to get deep, deep away from the danger. The doors close swiftly, the man-moth always seats himself facing the wrong way. that because he's too frightened to see where he's going. Well, we know he's a strangely brave, frightened creature. The man moth. What is the wrong way? I think we think. Oh, yeah, because you have to when you get on the tube, you have to sit facing the way you're going. Of course, you you don't have to do that, or on trains, but we feel that's the wrong way. So maybe. What's happening there? The doors close swiftly. The man moth always seats himself facing the wrong way. There is no wrong way, that's been imposed by the sort of society that first stands a man feels safe within. But man moth is not part of their rule. The man moth always seats himself facing the wrong way, and the train starts at once at its full, terrible speed without a shifting gears or a gradation of any sort. So he gets on on the subway and there's no build-up. Everything is loud and fast and scary, and you're not eased into anything in this world. Imagine the terror of this sensitive creature who believes that the moon is a hole in the sky being put in this industrial, urban Environment with all its noise and speed. He cannot tell the rate at which he travels backwards. Now, in the same way that we heard a shadow reference and we had to compare it to a previous shadow reference, it's hard now not to go back to the first stanza and read of man thinking of a temperature impossible to record in thermometers. He was worried that the moonlight had got a strange, spooky, cosmic quality that wasn't solid, practical and measurable in the same way that the man-moth can't tell the rate at which he travels backwards. So his lack of understanding is not about the strange, mystical moonlight. It's about the hard fact practical things that first stanza man found somehow reassuring next stanza i'm moving as fast as the train now each night he must be carried through artificial tunnels and dream recurrent dreams just as the ties recur beneath his train these underlies rushing brain he does not dare look out the window for the third rail The unbroken draught of poison runs there beside him. He regards it as a disease he has inherited the susceptibility to. He has to keep his hands in his pockets, as others must wear mothlers. So every night the man-moth, this sensitive, seemingly poetic creature, goes he must be carried through artificial tunnels not like that tunnel he wanted to go through to go into the enlightened outer world these are artificial tunnels and he must dream recurrent dreams even his dreams the repetition of modern urban life he is a victim of that this creative creature Just as the ties recur beneath his train, these underlies rushing brain. Two things. The ties are those wooden things you get in between railway tracks that sort of keep them an equal distance apart. And they rush beneath him. And these underlies rushing brain. Of course, they literally underlies rushing brain in that they're underneath him as he travels on the train. But also they represent as they blur his thoughts as he's thrust through this industrial world. And there's a rhyme there. It can't be accidental, can it? There's no rhyme at all in this poem. And then suddenly, just as the ties recur beneath his train, these underlies rushing brain. Maybe that's a bit of poetry Seeping from him into this industrial world, or maybe it's trying to suggest that da dom da dom da dom of the rail travel. He does not dare look out of the window for the third rail. The unbroken draught of poison runs there beside him. The third rail, in case you don't know, is the rail which is throbbing with live electricity, which runs at the side of the the, the two tracks that the train travels on. So it is dangerous. It's power. It's all about power. And maybe Moth is just frightened. He's frightened of everything. But maybe this is a general sense of power that he's frightened of. Again, it feels like some sort of industrial monument, some sort of mighty achievement of mankind, which this tiny, fluttering, sensitive creature is terrified of he regards it as a disease he has inherited the susceptibility to he has to keep his hands in his pockets as others must wear mufflers so this third rail which is described as the unbroken draft of poison runs there beside him a mighty terrifying live electric metal thing like an unbroken draft of poison. So constant threat. You're constantly carrying a draft of poison with you that could break and kill you at any point. And he regards it as a disease he has inherited the susceptibility to. Is it saying here, is the speaker telling us this story from above, saying that everyone is afraid of the modern world, because of all that power, the electricity, the potential death, the draft of poison that's always at your side. I mean, that man of the first stanza, he sounded like he was standing upright, but he was upside down. He was tiny, first as a doll and then as a pin, sounding more and more vulnerable and frightened to look upwards and unsettled by moonlight on his hands. He's frightened as well. I don't think we're getting a contrast here of a kind of man who is bold and who pushes forward the barriers of life. We're getting every city dweller seems to be frightened. Some are confused and accepting and some try to climb towards the light. He has to keep his hands in his pockets as others must wear mufflers. It's like he's afraid. Some people just wear scarves for cold. Again, practical reasons. He keeps his hands in his pockets. It's like he doesn't want to make contact. You know, when you're out, your hands are what touches the handrails or what rests on the seat beside you, what presses the button to open the doors And when you're out in the city. He's so frightened so hiding away this tiny this tiny poetic soul last stanza i know i have gone on but what a poem what a poem if you catch him and now i think the speaker is really making him a moth he's gone from being the man moth sometimes he just feels like a man is he's, he's on the tube he's keeping his hands in his pockets which I don't think moths do but sometimes he's climbing the side of a building and in this last one he just seems to be a moth and that's because I think we're doing a classic Elizabeth Bishop technique of going in really close on the things she's talking about of really switching to zoom of looking at the details last stanza if you catch him Hold up a flashlight to his eye. It's all dark pupil. An entire night itself. Whose haired horizon tightens as he stares back and closes up the eye. Then from the lids one tear. His only possession like the bee sting slips. Slyly palms it. And if you're not paying attention he'll swallow it. However, if you watch, you'll hand it over. Cools from underground springs and pure enough to drink. If you catch him. So now we've caught this moth. Hold up a flashlight in his eye. So we're really going to examine. We've had this vague sense of this man moth, this nocturnal climber, this nocturnal poetic reacher upward towards the light if you catch him hold up a flashlight to his eyes I know you're really presenting him with the light it's all dark pupil an entire night itself so are we suggesting now that the man interior is black as night? I don't think we are I think we're I think what we're supposed to deduce from this is that the man-moth has one enormous pupil. The pupil, as you know, of the eye, it opens up to take in light. And so this seeker of light should have an eye that's completely black because the aperture wants to get every bit of light it can. And it's interesting that an entire night itself, so the eye in order to find light, needs to become as black as night. It needs to go dark in order to find light. And that's what happens when the pupil gets bigger and bigger. The eye gets darker and darker so that it can take in more light. Whoa. But I love this line. So it's all dark pupil an entire night itself whose head horizon tightens as he stares back so the lash the eyelash on the eyelid is described as a haired horizon h-a-i-r-e-d how marvelous whose haired horizon tightens as he stares back so the next time you buy false eyelashes you should ask if you could get have you got any haired horizons I can uh, I can buy, please. Whose head horizon and tightens as he stares back and closes up the eye. So he's squinting. You know, you're pointing a flashlight in his eye. He, he squints. Then from the lids, one tear, his only possession, like the bee sting, slips. So he releases one tear. Why his only possession? Well, maybe because the tear is true the quintessence of being human of being sensitive of being caring that you can cry that you can experience sadness one tear is only possession maybe that's all we really possess is that absolute core human thing like the bee sting slips why like the bee sting because i think if he loses that he dies just like when a bee stings the sting remains in the victim and the bee dies if the man moth this tiny in a way illusioned character if you can be disillusioned you can be illusioned he has this real raw humanity in him and it's represented by that tear and if he loses that tear like a bee losing its sting he will die and the contrast the bee dies from an act of violence if you like the man moth from an act of fear from compassion slyly he palms it, and if you're not paying attention, he'll swallow it. So like a magician hiding a card in his hand, he'll try to hold on to this tear, to hold on to that compassion, to hold on to that humanity. He'll swallow it and put it back in. However, if you watch, he'll hand it over. It's a bit like the old leprechaun thing, that if you keep your eyes fixed on him, he has to give you his gold If you watch, he'll hand it over, cool as from underground springs and pure enough to drink. So we we are sort of tasting the quintessence of sensitive, poetic humanity, I think, in that tear. Are we killing him by drinking it, though, by tasting it? When he loses it, his only possession. Is that what happens when we look at beautiful things in life? As someone once said, we murder to dissect. My goodness me, there's so much in this poem. And we end with that. However, if you watch, you'll hand it over cool as from underground springs and pure enough to drink. What a stark contrast! with this scary, loud, pointy, industrial world that first stands a man and man-moth exist within. So inside us there seems to be something pure and beautiful and it is being squeezed by modern life. I have really gone on a long time, forgive me, but I do love that poem. There's so much... i tell you what happens with this poem. You read it, and then it's in the very marrow of your bones for days afterwards. This strange, dark, Magrittean, Kafkaesque, Bishopian, noir, alienating... Give me another word, quick... Um Scary World, I'm going to settle for that. Um, Elizabeth Bishop, I could have done so many different poems. She's so good. If you don't check her out, you're foolish. And you're more like first stanza man than man-moth. You don't want to be that, do you? Thank you so much for listening to Series 8 of Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget you can find all of the previous series and episodes from wherever you get your podcasts.